if we stay true to what we're good at and we continue to be ranked in the top decile of funds, uh, we have an opportunity to build a brand between the coast that has not been built. Um, there are notable firms in New York City you've worked with and you've built some. <laughs> and there are very notable firms in the Valley um, that are household names. There is nothing between the coasts really that that's a household name. There's an opportunity to build that um, founder first uh, while also delivering uh, top returns. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. Before we dive in today, a few quick business announcements. First, check out my pet project, Thunder.VC. It's a new platform that matches founders and investors in a super respectful way. It's got to be the easiest way to connect with folks and raise capital. Check it out. You can find it at Thunder.VC and reserve your handle before it's gone. Also, our incubator at Interplay is accepting applications. Our program is super active. It is not an accelerator. If an accelerator is more of a classroom format, our program is more akin to private tutoring. You can learn more about all the details of the program and apply at interplay.vc. On today's episode, I have Nick Moran of Newstack Ventures. Newstack is a VC firm based out of Chicago that focuses on early seed stage investing. In my previous episodes, you've probably heard me share a bit of my excitement about the democratization of innovation across geographies. Ecosystems are sprouting up all over the world, and I think it's great for mankind. Nick and the Newstack team are a perfect example of this and why I'm excited. They're building a brand name VC that sits right between the coasts, which is an underserved market, and they're deploying capital in that region. Nick is not only a pro VC, but he's also a veteran podcaster as well. He's the host of The Full Ratchet, where he interviews fellow venture capitalists and investors. He's been doing it for years, in fact, at this point. Uh, And it's a great podcast that I highly recommend you check out. He was kind enough to have me on the show back in 2015. And today, I'm returning the favor. Now, as for today's chat, I've got to say that I thoroughly enjoyed this one. Uh, We had some real honest conversation, real talk about the world of venture capital, its functions, what's broken, and where it's going. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by ReShield. ReShield is part of the FounderShield family of insurance brokerage companies. It's a tech-enabled insurance brokerage focused on real estate. If you're interested in learning more, visit reshield.co. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for being here. Mark, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So I don't know if everyone knows who you are, but you have an impressive background, a great story. I'd love to start by just focusing on what you're currently doing um, so people have some context. Would you give us an overview of Newstack Ventures so people know what you do day to day? You got it. So we're a venture firm. We're based in Chicago. We invest at the very earliest stages, pre-seed and seed. So that could be at company formation, It could be at early MVP or early commercialization. Um, But we really focus on outsiders. We focus on the folks that can't command early stage capital in the Valley or in New York City. Um, These are founders that may be located off the radar, right? In places like Toronto or Atlanta or Omaha, Nebraska. Um, It could be founders with an atypical profile. So people that didn't go to Stanford or Columbia or Duke, like yourself, Mark. Um, or maybe they, maybe they didn't work for a big tech company, right? So they, right. they grew up in industry. 
and they're they're super ambitious, hungry, tenacious, brilliant founders, but they don't have that standard Silicon Valley profile. And um, we partner with them really early. We take ownership. We lead deals. Our average check size is about a million bucks at entry. Um, we can go up to two or as low as 200K. Um, but we really look to partner with sort of the next generation of true leaders in the tech space, but folks that are new to the tech space. So investing at pre-seed in particular is a bit of an art. You have to identify which companies are going to make go the distance before they've even built a product in many cases. How are you evaluating that? What makes something a fit for you outside of the fact that it's not New York, not Silicon Valley, um, and the general stage? What, what are you looking for? Well, I mean, your point's well taken. I, I uh, host a podcast myself. I have for eight years on venture capital and interviewed Neil Sakara from Defy uh, yesterday. Um, of course, very practice investor that's been doing this for over 20 years. And he made the same point that it's really an artisan business. Um, it's not just based on formulas and metrics. That's kind of table stakes to understand what you're dealing with. Um, but there's an art to it. And I think uh, time will tell on if you know we're a true artisan and if we have sort of the, the right rubric here. Um, but for us, it's all about mindset. You know, We view metrics and we view traction as lagging indicators, um, mm-hmm. which is why we don't look for those, right? Your typical SaaS series AVC is going to write a numerous blog posts about what winning with ARR and net revenue retention and, uh, and quick ratios look like, right? That's not what we do. We're trying to meet the best of the best people that have mission-driven objectives, have a clear picture of what near-term success with an MVP looks like, as well as uh, an idea of a long-term vision for creating a billion-dollar-plus tech company. Um, so we're evaluating a range of different mindset factors with the founders, and um, we're helping guide and make sure that they're operating in a market space and building an opportunity that can be venture, venture scale, right? We don't, yeah. Go so ahead. this is, uh, you're a team investor, right? That's right. I'm sure, I'm sure you want to see market and barriers if they're possible, but you're betting on teams. Now, you mentioned psychological profiling, and we, had, we were chatting a bit before. Both our wives have psych backgrounds. That's right. Uh, are you using any of that when you're evaluating founders? <laughs> well, I joke with my wife because she's my chief uh, counsel on all things business, and she should probably be on, you know, on the marquee at Newstack because uh, in my world, she's a general partner as well. And I couldn't do this job without her. I mean, every night, whether I'm having conversations about the team, my team, or the founders we're meeting with, um, <laughs> she always has the answers, which is kind of funny. But um, the the short answer is yes. I mean, we have something we call a founder matrix. It's got seven different dimensions that we evaluate mm-hmm. on a 50th percentile all the way to hundred hundredth percentile scale or 99th, right? So we're and we get get very specific. Um, about how we rank founders on on these different paradigms. Um, so things like tenacity and speed, things like storytelling ability, things like how mission driven and customer obsessed the founder is. Um, we're we're evaluating these things because these are the things that we truly value, and we found that when we partner with founders that embody these psychological and ideological principles, it's just a great fit. It's a great cultural fit. We're the right venture investor for them. 
and um, we can find a home for them at Series A with a Tier One investor. Did you create this framework, or is it something you borrowed from existing psychology and hiring practices? Well, it's funny because a lot of folks claim that venture is an apprenticeship business. I did not grow up in venture. I wasn't a tech person. I didn't work for um, uh, primary ventures like yourself, right, or other places. Um, I had to learn on my own. I was an operator that worked in big industry that founded a a product that had extraordinary success, which allowed me to retire at 32. But I had to learn from the ground up angel investing. And in so doing, I also had an apprenticeship. So I launched this podcast nearly eight years ago where I I got to interview folks like yourself, the best of the best venture capitalists in the country. I got an audience with them where I could ask the questions that I wanted to ask, get the answers that helped illuminate, you know, what makes for these super special people. Because the big secret in the industry is the unicorns are really the people. The businesses are just kind of the lagging indicator of the people behind them. And, um, you know, after learning from all these great investors, I don't know, 300, 400 plus episodes over eight years, um, that was my apprenticeship. And taking all those collective sort of insights and distilling them down is what created this, uh, this founder matrix, as we call it. Okay. So you took that information from the conversations and probably your own experience also. I think you're giving everyone else too much credit. Uh, and you distilled this into your own framework. Is that right? You got it. That's right. 100%. Okay, right on. Have you uh, gone as far? I'm fascinated by the framework, by the way. That's why I'm digging in. Have you gone as far uh, to test the framework's results against the results from your fund and your investments? Have you started to see a correlation that, hey, it's right? 100%. I mean, I hate to talk about it, but we, we do postmortems and we do reviews of the portfolio. We look at both, mm-hmm. broadly speaking, we split everything into opportunity side, which is a com- combination of market, product, technology, and then the founder side, right? And we evaluate those two things at a very high level on a regular basis, uh, on a bi-yearly basis. And uh, the folks that make 99th percentile in our must-have category are always the best fit in, in a working partnership with us. And those results end up to be super positive. I mean, we've had some breakout successes. Um, we have you know, some really strong lead horses. And those founders embody the traits that we've found um, are best in our partnership. And so that's why we, we screen for those traits. Now, we can't over-optimize and we can't... You know, It's still an art. So you have to be able to apply critical thinking skills. It's not just a plug and play formula. Um, but it's important for us to assess the characteristics that have led our founders to to the greatest success. When you talk about the partnership with you guys, so let's say someone checks all the boxes, business is awesome, uh, the person gets profiled in a certain way, and the machine says, "Yes, you got to do, you got to work with this person." Feels like the right thing. You write the check. What does a partnership look like for folks listening when they take Newstack's money? What uh, what do you guys do? Beyond the money, which is obviously an important part of the game at this point. Sure. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think we always start with the end in mind. And the end for us, or at least the interim goal, is not a huge IPO. That's too far in the future. Um, so the thing that we're optimizing around is what does Series A winning 
look like for this company? How do we get a tier one investor to lead your series A round? So that's the end that we start with, the goal. And from there, we work our way back. Um, so let's say you're operating an enterprise SaaS company, right? There's an established set of metrics out there and milestones that one must reach if they want to achieve a tier one series A uh, investment from a great firm, right? The metrics are kind of the easy part, um, but there's also some finer things around it. Like what does your team structure look like, right? What does the scale and the vision opportunity look like? So once you you capture the beachhead. Once you rinse and repeat around a really focused offering and a focused market, you know how do you expand either horizontally or vertically with your product and your opportunity from there, so that you can paint a really compelling vic- p- picture to a, a Series A VC on why you not only can become a one billion dollar company but maybe a ten. Um, so we always start with that goal of what does Series A winning look like. We have a process we call it the next round plan. Um, and we just really dig in and make sure that we can help um, set the strategic agenda, make sure we're aligned on North Star with the founders. That's the key because it's really it's really easy in this business to get distracted by bright, shiny objects because they're everywhere. And when you're building something great, there's a lot of people out there that want to partner with you, that want to work with you, that want to use your product, that want to license it. And um, it's really hard and takes a lot of discipline to stay on North Star. Um, I like to say John Vrionis was on my show. He's a famous investor from Lightspeed that now runs a firm called Unusual. And he said, startups are not rocket science hard. They're dieting hard. Um, the focus piece is the hardest part about it. Um, having that North Star and staying on it and staying true to it and uh, re- maintaining focus without having blinders on. So that's kind of the biggest piece. And we plug in our network. Um, Mark, you know, we could talk about this, but we're based in the Midwest. So we work with a lot of founders that don't have the advantages of the Valley. And so we try and bring some of those advantages to the founders. I actually think that's a super important role in the ecosystem. I want to talk about that for a minute. The focus, as you said, is on uh, companies not in the existing hubs. Now there's more hubs now. So uh, if, if the trends continue, hopefully you'll have fewer places to hunt. Um, for non-hub founders. But uh, for people not currently in the tech hubs who are building companies, uh, you work, you focus on them and the goal is to help them raise an awesome Series A. So how do you help bridge that given that um, wherever they're located may not have as much uh, follow-on capital waiting for them? There may not be the Series A investors. So how do you help them get to the Valley, get to New York, uh, where they need to get to to get the deals done? Right. Um well, I think the the best place to start is to say what are the biggest advantages of being in the Bay Area, right? Um, and and I think the the biggest single advantage of the Bay Area is network density. Uh, there is a critical mass of folks working in tech, talking about tech, ideating on tech, investing in tech. Um, and that has advantages and disadvantages, right? If you spend too much time in the Valley, you can get caught up in the echo chamber and you don't see a lot of opportunity outside of it. But the advantages are well-documented. Um, talent is readily available. Uh, talent has experience in the tech sphere. So folks know what it means to go from MVP to proof of concept to scale, um, or sorry, MVP product market fit to scale. And um, outside of the Valley, we don't have all those advantages, right? We invested in this fantastic founder, um, Native American and Puerto Rican founder in Omaha, Nebraska. And it's funny, when we visit Omaha, this guy's the man in Omaha. 
Like he's a celebrity, mm. but he's one guy that's at the seed stage of a startup. And while he has access to great talent in Omaha, he's going he's going to need access to better talent, or maybe not better talent, but talent that has different experience in different areas, um, technical experience and startup experience as he grows. He's also going to need access to capital networks. And we help kind of bridge that gap. Um, so if we put the right talent on the team and he drives the right sort of progress that the business requires to get to Series A, uh, we can provide those warm on-ramps and warm introductions to the right investors at the right time. Um, you know, We like to say in the Midwest, we have the broadest and deepest network of any investor. Um, due to sort of the eyes and ears in every major and minor city that we've created with this podcast that we um, that we manage, but um, those are kind of the main ways we help. We really plug them into networks. Um, we set up advisory relationships for our new founders with our mm-hmm. most successful founders, so they have a one to one advisory relationship that they don't have to pay for. We pay for it, um, and we try and bring a lot of this network density to our founders that don't have the advantages of being in a geo with uh, a lot of people like them. So how do you do that? One thing that, that all makes sense to me, the one thing I, I don't have my head around is how you do talent. So if someone's in Omaha, Nebraska, and they need to hire someone with a particular set of expertise, mm-hmm. um, and there maybe isn't as much industry there to have trained people up for them, are you guys actively doing the recruiting? How do you get people there? Is it intros? What's the, what's the mechanism for you? We don't do the much there, piece? to be honest. Uh, the most important value add that we have there is on the strategic direction. So, um, you know, what are the needs of the business? And then, uh, from a perception standpoint and from a leadership standpoint, what does the business need to look like at series a? So maybe we need, you know, a, a CRO in place that has experience selling to, um, SMBs in a certain market. Right, we can help identify that, or maybe uh, an elite product person is required for your type of startup. A product person that has experience building products, um, expanding feature sets, and and going horizontal uh, across a space. Um, so it, for us, it's more about you know helping identify what are the right strategic leadership roles that are required for this business in order to have the opportunity to scale. And then actually plugging the specific talent into that, you know, we leverage um, other service providers. We don't have an in, in-house recruiting team or HR team, um, but we do have preferred service providers that can help with that. And that's probably the most important thing that a startup, you know, often overlooks is the importance of A plus talent. Um, so we make sure that they have the money so they can pay for it because the difference between A plus and A minus is substantial. Mm, okay. Now, one of the things I like to think about, obviously, because I'm in the business with you, is you know we're talking a lot about entrepreneurs, but you're an entrepreneur, right? You're running your venture firm, and you're thinking about how to build your business. What is what what is the state of Newstack now, and what is the roadmap? What are you planning to do with the organization? Honestly, I think we're we're into Newstack. We're seven years in, seven to eight years in. And we're still at the seed stage. So the funny thing is, okay. you know, it's, we've been like the ramen profitable startup for a long time, right? I'm, right. I'm still the founder. I'm still, I'm still the least paid 
person in my organization. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we have seven folks now, but um, it's a lot longer. I think when you're building a venture firm, if you're a spin out, right, if you come from a very notable firm and you spin out and you have attribution to successful startups, it looks really different. It's like a year of suffering. And then you kind of, you know, you get your fun under you and you go. Um, if you're building from ground up, which we did in this case, um, it took a really long time. Uh, we we probably have 25 million ish under management at this point. Um, you know, we will raise another large fund in the future, and uh, we'll break out of the seed stage and become more of like you know Series A and uh, okay, things will be a little more operational. But um, I think as far as the future, what's the vision here? The vision is to stay true to what we're good at, which is early stage investing. So for the foreseeable future, I don't think we'll do more than a hundred million dollar fund. I don't think that's in our best interest or in the best interest of our LPs. Um, but if we stay true to what we're good at and we continue to be ranked in the top decile of funds, uh, we have an opportunity to build a brand between the coast that has not been built. Um, there are notable firms in New York City you've worked with and you've built some. <laughs> and there are very notable firms in the Valley um, that are household names. There is nothing between the coasts really that that's a household name. There's an opportunity to build that um, founder first, uh, while also delivering, uh, top returns. And so our goal very much is to, um, you know, is to build a, a category defining venture firm, uh, that's not located in the major tech hubs. I think you're going to pull it off. Uh, you know, it's, by the way, so I think it's one of those things that people don't understand what you were talking about is very real. Um, someone jumps out, they were a principal at a big name firm. They attract capital very quickly from LPs. But if you didn't do that, people are waiting to see your traction. And it's a long development cycle in venture. It can be years and years and years. So the idea that you're seven years in and you're just kind of, it sounds like you're, you're across the line. You're at the inflection point where it's, it's going to get bigger very quickly. But it takes a while and then you, you become a monster. So I didn't realize that your plan was to build a to go uh, up a stage and build a bigger institution in that geography. That's fantastic. Now, do you, do you plan on continuing to focus on folks in non-hub geographies? Or do you think it'll shift increasingly towards a Chicago-centered or a Midwest or something around your hub? Because Chicago's growing. Chicago's growing, and we're in you know, maybe the third or fourth uh, generation of the tech ecosystem. But even so, Mark, if I'm being honest, I don't think a top decile firm can be built just investing in Chicago quite yet. Um, it's just not that mature. And um, we don't have a critical mass of um, tech folks starting companies yet. Now, that's growing every day, which is great. Um, but for now, our focus remains you know, finding founders with atypical profiles that are in tech hubs or founders that are outside of tech hubs um, that have all the right mindset characteristics to build a great company. Um, they just didn't grow up, you know, in Silicon Valley in in some of these, you know, tech centric areas. So yeah, we're gonna stay there and we'll see how it evolves over time. I mean if if Chicago was exporting enough companies at the seed seed stage, uh maybe we would do another fund <laughs> to focus on some other areas, you know, one for emerging mm. locales and one for, um, you know, semi-mature markets like Seattle, Chicago, maybe Austin. Um, but that's all TBD. For now, 
there's still for us to find the types of founders that are the best fit for our firm, we have to be very aggressive and have hunting playbooks and have boots on the ground really in Atlanta, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Ann Arbor. And uh, we do, we, we actually manage a fellowship program where we have folks that are focused in region in all these areas and helping us, you know, find these transformational leaders. So, you know, I, I do want to give sh- Chicago a little bit of a shout, right? There is more going on than maybe, I, I don't think you're meaning to elude, right? We're, we're in one deal together, Tavala, um, and that's an excellent company based out there. Um, uh, and I, I know you've made a lot of investments in your backyard. And I, what I've seen in New York, because when I started in VC in, in New York, it was 2006, I think there was some parallels to what you're describing. I, I was nowhere near the first generation of New York VC. I maybe was third or fourth. Um, it had been around for 20 years plus. But it was just starting to really hockey stick as a community is what it felt like. It was getting critical mass. Uh, and when you had these companies pop up and they exited, they shed out, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 people who became founders. Right. And that grows pretty exponentially pretty quickly. It doesn't take many cycles of that to build a full, robust ecosystem. So hopefully that's what happens in your backyard. Now, let me ask you a question. You're talking about this, this uh, Scout program, the fellowship. What is that? Is that, are these are college students or what do you have, how, how do you operate the fellowship program? What cities do you focus on? How does it work? Yeah, the fellowship program. The seven people you mentioned on, those are people on your team. Your seven are full-time folks. That's right. Fellowship is in addition to that? That's right. Just to clarify. Yep. Okay. And there's a uh, 20 approximately 20 fellows in the program. It's a I mean we looked around the ecosystem and we saw these training programs, right? I won't specifically name them by name, but there are venture mm-hmm. capital training programs. It's very competitive to get into them. Um they're built up as, you know, you go through this training program and we'll get you a job at at a good venture firm, but they're really expensive. You know, many of them are 15-20k. Um and that's not accessible for a lot of young folks that have all the talent in the world, but they don't have the resources to pay for them. So we said, how do we create a training program where we open source our entire playbook, right? Here's how you source deals. Uh, Here's how you select deals. Here's the process for selecting. And here's how you win deals. Here's how you go out and amplify the portfolio, help out founders, and that allows you to then win competitive deals against other firms. Um, so we've open sourced this entire playbook. We went through a big recruiting process and we said, this is free. This is not going to cost you a dime, but it's required you actually deliver results. So that's the trade-off. Um, this isn't something where you go to a bunch of lectures and you hear a bunch of hand-waving about VC. This is where mm-hmm. we're going to give you the playbooks, but you got to put them into practice. Um, so you know, here's how you go and hunt deals in your region. Here's how you find them online. Here's how you find mm. them offline. Here's how you build networks with all the incubator managers, the angel investors, the accelerators, the lawyers, the service providers, right? Here's how you build a core critical mass network in your region. Here's how you become a player in your region in the venture community. And here's how you find really special founders that are building great businesses in your region and connect to them. Um, so we've outsourced, yeah, this entire training program. We got 20 folks going through it. It's a year long process. Um, so it's a real commitment, but just like everything at the firm, we measure everything. We're kind of very rigorous about, uh, metrics and man and, and measurement and management. And, uh, yeah, everyone's on the scorecard. It's all gamified. You know, you get your points for the week and, uh, you know, everyone's trying to get on that leader leaderboard and get to the top of it. So it's, it's a fun it's program. A we've had, 
What's that? Sorry. It's full time. It's full time for folks. No, this is a three to five hours a week. So while undergrads are are going through their college education, um, mm-hmm. we we ask them to try and carve out three to five hours a week uh, to contribute to this program. So it's we try not to make it a super heavy lift, right? Whereas we'll run internships. We got a couple interns from uh, Northwestern's Kellogg um, Business School right now, and they're more on a twenty out twenty to thirty hour a week internship program. Interesting. Now, you know, when you're playing at the early stage, you're, you're in pre-seed and seed at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of evolution happening in this market. You've got platforms coming out. AngelList is playing a major role. How do you think about how the fundraising game is evolving? Are you feeling any pressures or shifts happening uh, under your feet as you're in this business? Or does it feel like it's status quo for you? There's a lot of shifts going on. Uh, the market's dynamic. And like you said, there's a lot of new entrants and that's all a good thing. I, I, I would, I would like your opinion on it as well, Mark, on, you know, whether this is positive or negative, but we see it as really positive. All these increased, uh, capital providers at the early stages. Um, I guess some of the big observations though, are that a lot of the syndicates out there, which is where we started, we started with an angel syndicate before we had a fund. Um, a lot of the rolling funds, a lot of the angel investors that have become empowered to invest in startups, largely speaking, those are smaller checks, right? Less than a half a million bucks. And so most of those investors are going to be relatively passive. They're trying to build big portfolios because they're investing very early. So, you know, there's a failure rate and you got to manage that with diversification. And, um, you know, they're not going to be your number one lead advocate. And so what we're seeing happen in the marketplace is there's a ton of capital. But the, the majority of that capital is follow-on or co-invest capital. There's, there's a lack of leadership capital. And even within the venture fund, so people with an institutional fund under management, I just heard this data point yesterday, there are five funds that follow or co-invest for every one fund that's a conviction investor and leads deals and prices them. And so that's creating kind of a stra- some strange outcomes in the market. Um, you have a lot of people that want to follow. You, you don't have a lot of people that want to lead. And so the last three deals that we led and made, gave a term sheet and signed a term sheet and made an offer to were oversubscribed the day that the term sheet was signed. So there that were- That makes a, sense. It's really weird, but there's a line of investors that had pre-committed you know, to these founders and said, as soon as you get a lead, we're in. Um, even big checks. The last deal we did, the co-investor was a bigger check than us. We did 900. They did a million, which is- wow. Very strange, but there are large checks that kind of pre-commit, which gives them optionality, which you know may be a conflict of interest, but um, there's just a lot of capital floating around, but not a ton of conviction at the early stages. I don't know. What do you see, I would, Yeah, I would assume that actually creates a strategic advantage for you, right? Like there's a little bit of, you, you can find companies, you're not taking financing risk because you'll know they've got pre-committed a couple million bucks, whatever it is to fill out the round. And since no one else is leading, you get to kind of pick your spot. I think that's, um, I wonder if there's not a market dynamic that people will see that hole in the market as an opportunity. A couple of years back, there wasn't a lot of Series A leadership, right? It was the same problem. And that seems like it's filled in pretty nicely now. So I, I wonder if this won't become an opportunity for other seed funds who are looking at it saying, okay, I got squeezed out of the last two deals where I didn't lead it. And no one's leading these other ones I like. And if I lead them, they're funded because they've already got their fully subscribed otherwise. 
I think there might be an opportunity in that strategically. So, and maybe you're already benefiting from it, right? There are certainly benefits. Um, I mean, the fact that the founders don't have to continue dialing for dollars after we commit is great, right? It's a, yeah. it's a time suck. Um, the fact that they've found partners that they're confident in working with um, is a really good thing. I think that the weird thing about it or the change is, you know, when I started in this business, a lead would commit. The first deal I invested in was a, a deal out of Washington, D.C. called Cybrary. They've um, gone on to build a, a very, very large business. But when we led that deal, you know, you pass the hat. You go around to all your network connections and you say, who wants in the deal? And that was a very important element of the ecosystem when I started because it would sharing deals within networks was how deals got done. And now mm. that we're no longer sharing our deals, you know, <laughs> the number of deals that get shared with us will go down, which I think is okay because most of our sourcing is independent. It's not, we don't have dependent sourcing that's dependent on old networks. We create our own sourcing and we hunt and we have a playbook around it. But it's a different way of venture operating. There's not as much, hey, we have these little coalitions with these other firms that we invest with and we all share deals. Yeah, I think that's probably a, a part of a bigger trend. I'd agree with you, right? As the supply of capital has gone up, everyone's figured out there's a lot of yield in venture. They're reading about all the tech companies going public. They're more of the world reads TechCrunch. More of the publications cover tech than used to. So there's more of general understanding. There's more money flowing in. So everyone's got everyone's backed. There's more syndicates on, on AngelList. There's more funds. I think a lot of the deals do get oversubscribed very quickly. There's not a lot of filling rounds the way it used to be. But that's probably a good thing for the entrepreneur. It's great. Right? So I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of hearing you talk about it. I, I'm not sure it's a bad thing. It might be frustrating. But... Um, I think it might also be enabling you to not take a lot of funding risk. Because it used to be that sometimes a lead would commit and they couldn't fill the round out. And that would be a reason why a deal would die. So that's a, maybe an absent negative that's just kind of gone away. It's a huge benefit. You're right. Um, I'm trying to objectively point out some of the dynamics of it and the changes. Yeah. But uh, you're right. It, this is a huge benefit. More founders are getting funded. It's, it's yeah. less painful to get funded. And it's usually advantageous to Newstack. I mean, selfishly, uh, you know, for us to be a conviction investor, when most are herd investors, it's a huge advantage to us because um, you know, folks seek us out and they want to partner with us because we can lead and price and negotiate and play the lead role, right? Put together this next round plan, put together, work with the founders on strategic priorities. Like most angel investors and most small check investors, uh, they want to be along for the ride, but they're opportunistic helpers, right? We'll mm -hmm. help when you need some help. Like, just give me a call. And if I've got a network, I'll help. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the role of an angel versus the role of a VC is very different. Um, I had Nicole Quinn on the, on the podcast yesterday from Lightspeed, and she was talking about how much it surprised her on the difference between operating as, as an angel investor at Seed versus being a VC at Seed. Yeah, and, and just for the folks listening, uh, Nick's the host of a great podcast called The Full Ratchet, and we'll link to that in the show notes uh, and make sure that's included where everyone can see it because um, it's come up a couple times. We haven't talked about it yet. Um, any other thoughts on the venture market? Are there things that you think are fundamentally wrong with the venture business at this point? I mean, for 20 years, I've been on panels where people will say VC is broken, uh, and er, there, there have been problems with the industry. But um, 
are there things that are concerns to you when you were talking to LPs that, you know, you're, you know that the ultimate risk in what they're investing in is uh, some dysfunction in the industry? <laughs> well, it, it's funny that people have been talking about how the model is broken for a long time. I mean, it's forever. Forever. <laughs> it's well publicized that, you know, 20% or more like 15% of the firms drive all the value. Uh, the rest of the firms. I'm surprised aren't very it's good. 15%. I would have. I, I think I usually go around telling people it's one to five percent, but I might be wrong on that. Yeah, I mean, you point out some. It, the reality is, not many people are good at this. This is a hard job, yeah. and the gating factors to get into venture are not the key success factors for success in venture. Right? The gating factors are Stanford educated, built a tech company in a different generation, have a great network located in San Francisco. Right? And guess what those investors invest in. Their selection process is very similar to themselves, right? Everyone kind of uses their own heuristic. And uh, they're selecting people with provenance, with pedigree, that went to the right schools, that have built something before. Um, I had uh, Darmesh Thacker from Battery on the podcast, and he was saying he doesn't like to invest as much. He doesn't like to invest in multi-time founders as first-timers because multi-time founders operate with a lens that was built and formulated in a different era. And so he sees like second time founders, they're, they're too focused on building technology instead of building product and solutions, for instance. And uh, I think it's really relevant. And, and the problem I think in the ecosystem is the LP capital is going to chase um, old data, right? They're going to chase things that look a little more like a blue chip. They have a little bit better resumes. The optics are attractive. They don't want to take a bet on something unproven where the optics don't look as flashy and as bright and shiny, but the fundamentals might be better. And so that's part of the problem. LP ch capital chases people that, or investors that invest with maybe um, a suspect approach, but it's a safer approach, right? LPs want to keep their job. And if they bet on a big name venture firm and lose, they, st they save their job. If they bet on an unknown venture firm and lose, uh, they're out of work. And so that creates a lot of problems. And I think that's why the venture industry at large has been so ineffective. And it attracts some of the smartest people in the world <laughs> to work in this industry. And yet, uh, you know, there's pervasive failure rates amongst investors. Is there, we've talked a lot about the business now um, and how you guys are operating. Is there a sector you guys focus on or a space you're interested in at the moment? Anything that you're particularly excited about? Yes, we have some focus areas. Uh, we're not sector focused per se, uh, but in particular, I love legacy industries and we love SaaS and modern solutions being applied to legacy industries. Um, something that you'll find a lot in the Valley or in New York is you'll find tech people that are entering a domain or entering a sector where they don't have experience, right? And they're bringing technology and they're bringing new um uh, new solutions to an old world market. We kind of flip that. And actually, the founders we back are often people that come from industry, that come from a domain, but they're super savvy tech people. Just because they didn't grow up at Facebook or LinkedIn doesn't mean they don't have tech chops, but they grew up in industry and they actually understand the industry in in great detail. They have networks in the space. They're customer obsessed. They understand the problems and and they're great at listening. Right? They don't come in and say, hey, I've got this great tool, you should use it. They go in with their customers and they say, let's talk. 
Let's understand your problem sets and let's build the right thing that, that solves those, those issues. So we kind of have almost an inverse approach in what we invest in, in these legacy industries. It's a lot of folks that grew up really understanding their customers, understanding the problems, and then they can build solutions that map to those issues. But you, if, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't just do legacy industry upgrade, right? Uh, I no, remember, if I, if, if, right, because if, if, uh, if I've done my research right, uh, you recently invested in a company called Groundhog, which, if I understand it, is enabling e-commerce sites to transact in crypto. That's right. And crypto is anything but legacy at this point. That's right. Uh, so are you looking at more forward-looking things? Do, do you think crypto is a bigger part of your portfolio going forward? Probably. Or is that a, a one-off? Well, I so yeah, when I talk about legacy industries, that is a focus area. That's something that we like and something we look for. It's not all we do, right? Like we're co-investors in Tovala. That's a consumer mm-hmm. product. It's hardware. It's smart home, smart kitchen, and it's delivering amazing, delicious food with no clean, no prep and no cleanup. I mean, imagine a better value proposition for a consumer than that. Um, I'm an investor, but more importantly, a customer. I love it. Right, right, hundred percent. So, yeah, that doesn't feel legacy at all, right? That's um, on the other side of the spectrum. So, we have a very open mind um, about working with the right teams that have their own insights. Uh, Peter Thiel likes to talk about the secret, right? You need to have a secret about the industry. In that case, mm-hmm. in the case of Tovala, David Rabbi had a secret. The secret was Blue Apron and HelloFresh customers churn at exceptionally high rates. Why do they churn? Because they buy into this vision of easy dinner. And when they receive a kit, it's not easy. They got to cook. They got to clean. It still takes them 45 minutes, right? So how do we deliver on that vision of easy dinner um, with a solution that actually services <laughs> the, the, um, the, the, the problem statement? And Tavala was able to do it. They created a smart machine. like It looks like a little microwave. Uh, it's, a, it's called a combination oven. All you do is put aluminum trays into it and it come, the food comes out amazing. And um, so, you know, we look for these, it's, you, me, you mentioned at the top of the call, Mark, and I know you do the same. It's a team-based in, investing framework. You got to find the right people with the right insights about their market and their domain. And if they have those just, if they have those illuminating insights and those secrets, and they're creative and they're resourceful and tenacious about seeing it through, uh, we will invest. And tell me, let me switch gears here for a minute because you know, one of the most notable things about your career uh, and what you've been doing lately is you're a really successful podcaster with the Full Ratchet. Um, you've been doing it for eight years. I am, by every measure, an amateur here. Uh, we were swapping some notes on that before the show started. Uh, what has the podcast done for you? What has the podcast done for you? Well, I, I told someone yesterday, I was on a call uh, with somebody and I said, the, you know, they were asking, why, why do you keep doing this? And I said, or actually their, their point was, you ask really deep and tough questions and good questions. Um, you know, what keeps you doing this after eight years? And I said, the questions have to be interesting to me for me to keep doing it. As soon as it's no longer interesting for me to have the discussions and we're just talking about surface level stuff, uh, it's going to become a real drag, especially after eight years. So they have to be critical thinking. There has to be substantive conversations. And, um, and that's why I enjoy it most, right? It has been my training ground 
It has been my apprenticeship for VC. It continues to be my apprenticeship in how to be really good at this, right? How to partner with the best of the best founders um, and, and help them achieve success in a much faster and capital efficient way than they would without us. Um, you know, and, and so the podcast has been amazing. I mean, it's created a network. Folks like you, Mark, my last funds, I needed help. I needed advice from GPs because I don't have any men, like mentors in the organization, right? I didn't work at Andreessen or, or Interplay before, uh, before investing. So I, I reached out to you and said, Mark, will you jump on a call? I've got some really hairy questions about uh, starting a fund and creating my partnership and allocating you know, ownership and how to think about reserves versus upfront capital. And you got on a call with me, right? Yeah. 29 other GPs did the same. And it's really amazing to me that after interviewing these folks on the show, and we have like a really good hour-long conversation, that creates the opportunity then for a relationship. And, uh, and people have been super helpful to me. And, and, and you need that, right? Whether you're building a startup or you're building a venture firm, it, it takes a village. As Samil Shah has said, it really does take a village and you need a ton of help. And um, I just appreciate the efforts you've done over the years to help me and provide the guidance when I needed it. And, um, you know, the relationships are everything. In any business, the relationships are everything. And to be, to be able to leverage those has, has been transformational for us. You know, it's funny. I'm having the same experience. Uh, for years, my partners have been trying to get me to do this, and I was not willing to. <laughs> uh, and I jumped into it just this past November. So we launched our first episode in January of 21. Uh, so this is, we're new. And didn't really know what to expect. What really motivated me to do it was the opportunity for intellectual stimulation to keep learning. And so I have found uh, two things have been the byproduct of the podcast for me that have been extremely valuable. One is I'm continuing to learn. I'm learned from this conversation already. Things you're doing, the way you're thinking about things, the way you talk about things. People don't get into this level of depth in a casual conversation. And the second thing is I found this odd dynamic, and it makes sense, but it's not what I expected, I guess, uh, where through the podcast, it's really intimate, right? Everyone's a little bit uncomfortable to be talking in public. Uh, I get to ask questions that probably aren't socially cool to ask otherwise. Uh, and at the end of it, I feel closer and deeper relationships with the people who have been on. And that's been magical. Right, I think there's a business benefit, but also it's just it's it's meaningful, it's fulfilling, especially in this COVID world where we're not having a lot of real human interaction. So, is that that sounds like what you're saying as well? I agree with you, Mark. Uh, yeah. I I'm a believer in relationship density, not relationship breadth. Right, and the problem with a lot of the platforms of today, the social networks and whatnot, is you get a lot of relationships, but they're a mile wide and an inch deep. So if you reframe those a little bit and you think of a lot of these networks as just a funnel, you know, the opportunity for relationships, um, I think that that's a better way to approach things instead of trying to build relationships exclusively on these social networks. Because like you said, I mean, whether we're doing a podcast like this, it's way deeper than uh, us chit-chatting and DMing on Twitter. And when I get together with you and, you know, and we grab uh, a beer or coffee in New York, that's a level even deeper, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you know the the strength of your relationships in life, and the more you invest in in creating these networks of the right people that are really going to help when you need them and when you're down, um, it makes all the difference. 
So thank you for all this. Thank you for being open. Before we wrap up, I want to pull some wisdom out of you, some additional wisdom. <laughs> I don't have much. I don't believe that. Uh, first, for the Midwest, Chicago area, and other, all these other regions, what should entrepreneurs listening be doing to help accelerate and scale the infrastructure and the communities there? Build great companies, right? Do something that connects to your experience and your background, something that you're obsessed about, something that whether you're walking the dog or doing the dishes or driving to work, you can't get it out of your head. Uh, you were put on this earth to build this company and, and commit the next decade of your life to. Um, I think the most important thing for a founder to do is focus on the right thing. And if they're not ready to build a company, that's okay. Maybe you go join one or maybe uh, you go work in industry and you learn a domain or a sector. Um, but the number one reason we pass on founders is not because they're incapable and it's not because they're not working on a big opportunity. It's because the timing isn't right for them, maybe to start a company, in our opinion, or they're in the wrong context. Maybe they're working on something that isn't their life's work. And so um, I'd encourage anyone to be really thoughtful about what you start. Don't start something because you can. Start something because you must. And if you do that, the success of your business and the talent, you mentioned this before about New York, right? Great businesses are built. And then that spurns a bunch of great talent that then goes and builds the next business. And if they do it for the right reasons, right? If they're committed to the work, they have a vision, they create culture, they create enthusiasm and energy, then the next generation of founders also have those skills and characteristics. And it's not just a bunch of mercenaries running around, you know, building tech, trying to look for a problem. So, Nick, uh, congrats on all the success. Very excited to watch you continue to build the institution you have in front of you. Uh, thank you for taking time today. You're the man, Mark. Always, always a pleasure. Can't wait to do it again. That was awesome. Special thanks to Nick for joining the podcast today. I love what he's doing at Newstack. I'm really excited to watch it grow and we're rooting for them. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.